1: This is my opinion and I'm gonna seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to.
0: At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for.
1: Does money buy you intuition insight creativity higher vision transcendence no money does buy you pleasure and pleasure is good but it's not enough we need fulfillment
0: welcome to the unwind podcast a show to help you pause relax reflect and be curious i'm your host poppy jamie a best selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience i interview world leading thinkers shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. On today's podcast, I'm speaking to a doctor who is close to having the cure for diseases we previously thought were perhaps incurable. This episode, we will be speaking about the power of poop, Yes, you heard me correctly. We're talking about poo. It may sound very odd, but the evidence and research behind the power of poo is extraordinary. My guest is Dr. James Kinross. He is one of the world's leading microbiome scientists and the author of best-selling book Dark Matter, where he breaks down the groundbreaking science behind your microbiome and why this is one of the main factors driving physical and mental health outcomes. What's a quote you return to often and why?
1: So there is a passage at the beginning of this book that I return to, and I'll read it for you if you like. It says, 21st century living is causing our airways to close, our skin to flake, our joints to swell, our guts to bleed, our arteries to clot and our brains to seize up. The global pandemic of non-infectious disease is arguably a greater threat to humanity than that cause by any communicable disease. It's quite a frightening paragraph, but it reminds me that we're living longer, but we're not living happier. And that if we want to live happier, we've really got to do something fundamentally different. Uh, And that means that we have to consider, in my humble opinion, our relationship with microscopic life forms on earth. And that's why I've written this book.
0: This book is absolutely fantastic. And I never thought I could get so excited about (laughs) the insects inside of us. But I guess let's start off really simply. Sure. What is the microbiome and why do you describe them as dark matter?
1: So the microbiome refers to all of the microscopic life forms that live within a niche. So those could be bacteria or yeasts or viruses and all of the things that they need to survive. And we have lots of microbiomes on our body the biggest of which is in the gut. The book is called Dark Matter for two reasons. The first is that I've drawn an analogy with space, right? Because I think it's kind of on that crazy scale. It's so big and so hard to conceptualize. But when researchers in the 1930s and 40s were looking into space, they came to the conclusion that the models of physics that we have don't really explain how the universe works. And this chap came up with this notion of dark matter. His name was Fritz Wicke, right? And I write about him in this book. Anyway, dark matter and its force, dark energy, explains how our universe is glued together. And 95% of our universe is made up of dark matter. But we don't know what it is. We can't measure it. We can't see it. And what I'm saying is, is that our health is kind of the same. In that we think about our human health being defined by our genes, right, so the code that we're all born with that determines how tall we're going to be in the colour of our hair and the colour of our eyes, but actually the human genome only makes up one percent of the genes that we carry around in us all of the time, and we just don't measure those other genes that all belong to microbes and their importance on our health. So it's called dark matter because This is a journey into the, I suppose, the universe within us to try and explain what those forces are within those microbes and why they're so important for our health.
0: What is the current state of play of our microbiome?
1: So you can answer that question in one of two ways. So there's what is the health of our microbiome, I suppose, both in terms of kind of the evolutionary uh, history of man or womankind, and also, um, you know, in the modern world. And then you can answer it in terms of what do we know about it? Mm. Like, how far are we into that journey? I think what we struggle with in microbiome science is trying to define what a healthy microbiome really is. But what we know is that we are losing large parts of the microbiome and we're losing it really quite quickly in the same way we're experiencing loss of biodiversity in ecosystems that we all can see and think of and imagine like rainforests or oceans or uh, you know rural environments, the same thing's happening within us, right? So we're having a catastrophic loss of microbial life forms, but also those life forms are changing. They're mutating, they're adapting to live in the modern world that we all live in. What is the state of the microbiome in terms of what we know? We are in the foothills of the journey, like we are right at the beginning. We've been studying this in a modern, with a modern set of tools for about 20 years. And basically it's like saying 20 years ago, we discovered there's a new organ. So, oh, this could be important. And it turns out this organ does so much more than we ever thought, and that the symbiotic relationship that we have with these microbes, so these mutualistic interactions that we have have a very deep and profound evolutionary basis and that they are vital to almost every aspect of our health. So you started by asking that question, what is a microbiome? Well, a microbiome to me has like that codependence. You need it to be optimally healthy and happy, but also it's got that evolutionary link to it.
0: What I thought was fascinating when I read your book is the fact that, specifically for me, someone who's very interested in mental health, is that when people think about their mental health, the last conversation they're probably having or thinking about is the impact their microbiome is having on their mental health. And you really described this and educated me in a way that I haven't been before. So I'd love to ask you, what is the relationship between mental health and microbiome?
1: So the answer is it's complicated, but there's no question that it is linked and it's intimately linked. To answer that question, we've got to go back a little bit in time. Mm-hmm. So, the microbiome, I think it's important, certainly in the evolution of the brain. I think it's been quite, it's paid an important part in unlocking some of the really important parts of the brain that we've needed as a species to evolve. But it's also very, very important in ensuring that the brain develops and grows properly, right? So, when you're very young and you've just been born, your microbiome, is seeded and it grows with you and it kind of blooms as you're breastfed and it, and it, and it changes as you, as you eat and you change and the functions of those microbes as it changes influence how the brain grows too. The brain is super hungry. It needs loads of sugar and loads of energy to grow. And some of that is provided by your microbes, but it also sets up the brain's immune system and it determines how those networks within your brain form effectively. What that means is, is that the microbiome in early life determines your susceptibility to um, perhaps mental health problems later in life, but also your risk of problems with neurodevelopment or neurodiversity or these sorts of in extreme end of the spectrum conditions like autistic spectrum condition. So the challenge in trying to explain that relationship is really properly proving cause and effect. So that a particular type of bug or particular types of bug actually drive these things. But we're starting to get inroads into uh, understanding precisely how that happens.
0: There is a link, I think I was reading, around you know, anxiety, depression, yeah. and obviously poor gut health. Yeah. And actually, if somebody was trying to address their mental health, then perhaps maybe look at improving your microbiome but what does that word or what does that journey even look like to improve your microbiome if we know that there is a link between what your microbes are doing and how you feel?
1: So the gift of the microbiome to me is in the prevention of chronic diseases and the prevention of mental health conditions right and the hypothesis of my book or the hypothesis of what I'm saying is that young people are experiencing a much higher burden of mental health problems than we ever have historically uh, because we are effectively destroying the microbiome over subsequent generations. Now we've got to be super careful here right because anyone listening to this will know that of course there are lots of environmental drivers of, you know, anxiety, depression, right? And some of them have got absolutely nothing to do with microbes, right? Yes. Uh, and if young people are experiencing and are being exposed to lots of environmental stimulants that are unprecedented in their scale and in their impact, so how we use digital media, for example, really good example of that, right? right? But what we absolutely know at the same time is that if you don't have your right, the right bugs in your gut early in your life, you can quite nicely prove in animal models, certainly, and we can see it in longitudinal studies of humans, that you're at higher risk of anxiety, for example, and we can begin to understand the mechanisms through which that happened. So for example, if you lack specific microbes, you can't make use of the right vitamins that you need to lay down the fat in your nerves as they grow, and then we know that we can trigger anxiety-like behaviors in animals if you take away that single species from from that rat. Similarly, we know that through faecal transplantation experiments from autistic children, and you put that faeces into animals as they're growing, you can cause autistic symptoms in those animals. Doesn't necessarily imply that microbes cause autism, or we think that's a really important part of the engine, But you can change the mood, the behavior of animals very nicely by taking human feces and putting it into those animals. And then you can correct it when you put in healthy feces into those animals. So what we know is from an experimental model, you can absolutely change behavior by interfering with the microbes in the gut. You asked me a super important question, which was basically, what do you do about it? What do you do if you're you know, a young person today and you're feeling anxious, can I eat a bit of kimchi and all this is going to get better? Mm. It's not quite that simple. Mm. Because it might be that actually if your gut is programmed on a certain route, on a certain path, unprogramming it is really quite hard. Because really what you're trying to do is to unprogram the immune system and its interaction with the brain or chemical signaling that's going from the gut to the brain. And it might not be simple as taking, you know, a simple probiotic. So this is this new theory of, Psychobiotics?
0: Yes. Right?
1: So this idea you can take a particular probiotic that influences brain function. There's a lot of interest in that, although we don't have clinical trials data at the moment to support that. Maybe what you need is a whole faecal transplant. You need the entire ecosystem of the gut to change because that's the only way you can turn the whole system on and off again. But having said that, if you are having mental health problems, thinking about your gut health is incredibly important because changing your diet, changing your lifestyle to promote gut health will absolutely influence the severity or the type of symptoms you're experiencing. And it will absolutely influence how the medicines that you're perhaps taking for your mental health problem might work or the side effects that you might experience from them. And I think mental health in general requires a holistic approach to it right? So I think most people now understand that gut health is kind of important, but doing those little incremental small things like perhaps thinking about what you eat, thinking about how you exercise, thinking about maybe particular supplements you might take, they do make a difference. They just can't necessarily switch you over to someone who's feeling a bit happier about the world.
0: But I guess from reading your book, the switch sounds like the solution is within us eating other people's poo.
1: <laughs> Please don't do that at home. <laughs> so. so, so do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I
0: kind of kept coming back to the same yeah. point, which is crap therapy yeah. seems to be quite successful.
1: <laughs> well, so, so for, for those of you who are listening, you don't know what crap therapy is. So what we are interested in is something called intestinal microbiota transplantation. That's the kind of new name for it because it sounds like less gross. <laughs> but but it, w- it was previously called faecal microbiota transplantation. And this is the idea that you can take a whole community of microbes from a faecal sample. So rather than just a probiotic, which is one, two, three, maybe four or five strains, you take the whole community from someone who is healthy or someone who is well, and you put it in someone who's sick. So it's kind of gross as it sounds. So you're taking a faecal sample. You're having to... Manage that quite stringently. It's, you can't just, you know, transfer it. You have to make sure they're not carrying pathogens or infective agents, or you know, you would treat it the same way as any other transplant, really. But it is transformative, and in some particular conditions. So in in superbug infections like Clostridium difficile, it's better than any other medicines that we have, and it works incredibly well. We've got really good evidence for it, and lots of chronic immune-mediated diseases like allergies and inflammatory bowel disease, and we've, we're getting increasing evidence for it in mental health and these sorts of problems. I suppose the question I'm asking here, though, is how the hell did we get to this point? How did we get to a point where the only solution was to have a faecal transplant? Right. And also, why do some of us have a, a healthy gut with a microbiome that works and some of us don't? Mm. And why well, that seems really unfair, doesn't it? Mm. So why is that happening? So this story, if you like, starts with the story of faecal transplants. Like, okay, this is this kind of gross thing but actually is amazing and has these extraordinary therapeutic effects mediated through the microbiome, what does that tell us about the importance of the microbiome and why should we care for it?
0: Let's go to those questions. Why do you think we've got to such a crisis in our microbiome? And as you have just shared in the passage Mm. um, at the beginning of this interview, things are pretty bad inside there not even out there but things are pretty bad inside there
1: so what i'm asking here is we're living longer than we have ever lived at any time in history but we're not living happier Mm. so why is that we have been unbelievably unimaginably successful in our treatment of disease since the industrial revolution and particularly since the development and advent of things like antisepsis germ theory, Mm -hmm. and then latterly the development of antibiotics. Because in the 1900s or 20th century, the thing that you were almost certainly going to die from was a pathogen. It was an infective agent that caused an infectious or Mm transmissible disease, right? So you were either likely to die of pneumonia, Mm -hmm. or you were going to die of TB, or what they used to call consumption, or you were going to die from a gastrointestinal infection like cholera, for example, Mm -hmm. right? But... Sure, you could have been hit by a horse and cart, died in the war, whatever, but likely those are the three big things. Now, you're not, because we've been amazingly good at treating these microbes. So the top three killers are cardiovascular disease, so disease of the arteries, so that means dying of a heart attack, really, or a stroke, or it's dying of a neurodegenerative tradition. For example, if you live in Japan, it's Alzheimer's that's gonna get you. It's not dying of an infectious disease. Now, I'm totally cognizant of the fact that we are still experiencing the shockwaves of a COVID-19 global pandemic Mm. where over 6 million people died from pathogens. I'm not saying that pathogens are not a problem. Uh, They are still a problem. And in fact, there is a paradox because they're becoming an increasing problem again because we have willfully and systemically misused antibiotics, right? So the antibiotics are running out. And so... So you asked me a question, how have we gotten to this state? Well, What I'm arguing is is that things were evolving pretty rapidly until the Second World War. And I'm arguing that after the Second World War, things changed really, really profoundly. And a couple of profound things occurred. The first was the mass industrialization of antibiotics. And the majority of antibiotics, 80% of antibiotics in North America today are not used in the treatment of people. They are used in the treatment of animals, right? And that is because we then became addicted to meat and our food, the, the things that we consume to survive, the whole pipeline for that became globalized. So we we developed homogenized diets with an addiction to processed food and addiction to meat. So clearly diet is super important. And that all changed after the Second World War. The third is urbanization. By 2050, 60% of the world's population will live in a city, right? Which means when you live in an urban environment, you don't live in a big family network and you and you have a smaller network of friends and you're exposed to perhaps more environmental toxins and pollutants and everything changes. The fourth is drugs. So with antibiotics, we started to take a load more drugs. And what many people don't understand is that many medicines that we take, although they're not designed to be antibiotics, have antibiotic functions. And we take loads of drugs, right?
0: I think you wrote 4.2 trillion drug yeah. drugs a year.
1: Yeah, which means that half the world's population take a medicine every single day, right? And the medicines that we take are not to cure disease. They are to maintain diseases in very profitable remission. And typically, these are diseases that are mediated by the immune system or their mental health problems, like 16% of the UK population take an antidepressant. How can that be? Mm. So pharma is really, really important. And then there's climate change Mm. or climate breakdown or whatever you want to call it, right? So because the microbiome intimately connects us to the world we live in, literally and figuratively, because the microbes that we touch, that we feel, that we... You know, come into contact when the hands are in the soil, end up inside of us, and that we have co-evolved from. When climate change starts to degrade the planetary microbiome, ours is also affected. So actually, climate change is probably now the biggest driver of it. And in this book, I talk a bit about conflict, which is also quite an important evolutionary force, because conflict changes the shift of people around the world, like it displaces people. Like the U- war in Ukraine today has displaced 10 million people. But also it drives antibiotic resistance, it drives the use of drug use, it changes the way we eat, it drives climate change. It's kind of one of these things that kind of perpetuates through. So in modern life, we want the comfort of knowing we can eat a bit of kimchi, have a bit of sourdough, and it's all going to get better. And what what I'm saying is it isn't. And the only way it gets better is if you conceptualise your health as a form of climate change. Like if you're experiencing these chronic non-communicable diseases and we know that young people are more likely to be affected, actually people at extremes of age, the solution actually is to have a slightly less sexy thing. It's really good healthcare policy that promotes it, really good regulation around how we regulate the use of junk food and fast foods and these sorts of things, You know how we think about antibiotic use in farming and how we properly educate our children about the importance of disease prevention and it's how you transform your thinking around what human health really is and it's dark matter it's not really defined just by your genome it's defined by the microbes that we have
0: and nurturing those microbes throughout your life i mean i couldn't believe when i read about the fact that you said if paracetamol was to be licensed now, it wouldn't get a license. Yeah,
1: for sure. Like, there's no way. It's dangerous. Like, it's really dangerous when we hand it out like Smarties. I mean, there's, what, 50... <laughs> right. I mean, look, I'm not... I don't want to preach. I mean, I take paracetamol regularly. <laughs> but, you know, it leads to 50,000 hospital admissions a year in the US. You know, people. it's the leading cause of liver transplant, and it, and it's a dangerous drug. And it. And again, the reason I write about paracetamol is to make the point that It's the most commonly used medicine anywhere in the world, pretty much. We don't know how it works. We we know some basics. We know like some fundamentals of how it works, but we still don't really have a unifying theory for how it works, right? What I'm arguing is is that the microbiome plays a really important part in determining your risk of having toxicity and side effects and paracetamol. And basically, bugs in the gut consume and they soak up sulfur, which you really, really need in the liver to detoxify paracetamol. So if you've got the wrong type of bugs, you can't effectively process it in the liver. And in fact, you could predict that by measuring for some of these metabolites in urine, and and a group at Imperial did a really nice piece of work from that. And therefore, you can kind of extend the rationale there, because... The thing that determines whether or not you've got a good or a bad gut that can metabolize paracetamol is how obese you are or the foods that you eat Mm. or um, these other kind of really important lifestyle factors that we know uh, make a big difference to your health, which is why when you're sick, eating junk food is such a bad idea because your junk food just switches on those bugs and it stops you being able to properly metabolize the drugs that you need to get well again
0: do you encourage, and again, I'm saying this in moderation, of course, if you've got a high temperature and you're really struggling, everybody probably would be helped by paracetamol. But are you someone, if you get sick, you actually really try to use your own immune system to, and it may be more uncomfortable, maybe you have Mm. more night sweats, but you'll try to resist paracetamol intake as and when you can.
1: So when I've written this book, and if you read this book, I hope you'll take this from it. I've written this book from a very personal perspective. I've talked about my experience and my family's experience of trying to manage, you know, the health challenges that we all experience. And that's because I've made every single mistake in the in the book, right? And because some of the choices that we make in modern life are phrased as choices, but they are not really choices, Mm. right? So uh, you can't choose how you're going to be delivered, how you're going to be born, for example. And the other point that I'm kind of laboring is is that if you're sick, like if you're really sick mm. and mm. there's a medicine that works, well, then you should absolutely take it. Like if you're sick and you've got a bacterial infection, take it because it might save your life, right? Yeah. And I would take it. And I prescribe it every day, by the way, to my patients because I'm a surgeon. And if I don't, they will die. Mm. If I've got a temperature or fever, if my kid has got a temperature fever, mm. I give them you know, what in the US they would call Tylenol or what we call paracetamol because it will bring down their temperature and they will feel better. But what I do do is I think perhaps a little bit more holistically about what else I might need to do to try and support myself through that illness or my family through that illness in a way that I never did before. So I'm a surgeon, which is, you know, the worst cliche, like when I was training, when I was young, I was like, well, you know, diet is nonsense, and this is all rubbish, and actually, you know, when you're sick, just cut it out, you'll get better, you know, and now I've just gone (laughs) completely the other way, which is that actually the best, like, prevention is obviously the focus of everything that we should be doing, and that when you are unwell... Having really good focused nutritional and dietary support is absolutely fundamental and as doctors we are the worst at giving it. We give terrible advice. Usually the advice we give is wrong and that's if you get any at all, right? Because the average family doctor in the UK doesn't get that education. They don't get trained and they get taught in it. So yeah, it's a big challenge.
0: I am over the moon because I want to take a moment to thank my podcast partners for this episode. It is the brand Artar, and they create the most incredible supplements. And I'm really not just saying this. I took their fertility supplement for three months prior to my egg freezing journey, and it gave me so much confidence because I knew I was taking great quality, very thought through supplements that would give the nutrients my body needed to optimize my result. And they offer different supplements for different things, but I couldn't recommend their fertility supplement more if you are on that maternal journey. But they focus on being effective, efficient, evidence-based, and they also offer nutrition programs designed to help you thrive. They're award-winning, they use practitioner strength and sustainably sourced ingredients free from harmful additives and fillers and they use the very best quality ingredients at the right dosage and many supplements don't do this and so this is why I want to celebrate Artar even more for how delicate and sensitive they've been when it comes to health and supporting people in the way they need to be supported. Their range includes formulas for metabolism, cellular health, gut health, and of course, fertility to help you address metabolic health from every angle. I obviously am a huge fan of their enhanced fertility blend, which uses vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients proven to improve egg quality hormone health and blood sugar all the things are very important on that journey and i love that they use a good dose of coq10 which is an important ingredient for women in their 30s because it has everything you need to optimize maternal and fetal health so that's a truly honest recommendation i'll put a link to the brand in the show notes and thank you again to artar for creating such excellent products and i'm excited that you all know about them now Why is the term leaky gut slightly misleading?
1: So gut barriers, so barriers that we all have in all of our organs, like in our lungs and our gut particularly, are so important to the maintenance of our health. And the reason they're so important is because lots of cells that you need that regulate your immune system live there. And these barriers are quite important to keeping out pathogens and bad actors that cause disease that if they got into your blood system would make you kind of really sick. So it's like this, the way I've kind of tried to paint it is that it's, imagine it a bit like a barrier reef, like it's a barrier reef protecting land from the sea, right? And it's there to keep the storms out and it supports this vivid, colourful, complex, sophisticated, living ecosystem along it. And it maintains not just the health of the ocean, but the health of the the the, you know, the land behind it. But it's not a wall that keeps everything out. It's designed to be damaged. It's designed to regenerate. It's designed to sense the ocean around it and to bring in good things that it might need and to keep out things that might be bad. And that's the way I think of the gut. So when barriers fail, It's bad news, right? It's bad news in my job as a surgeon because when they fail and they fail catastrophically, you end up with sepsis and you you can get life-threatening illness. If they fail in subtle and nuanced ways in gut development, we think it's very important explaining why some people get allergies or asthma or eczema or ATP. But what it isn't is a leaky gut syndrome. And I think this is a term that's used by people who are usually trying to sell something or perhaps a well-meaning But I've slightly misunderstood how the gut really works and it's not a syndrome like a syndrome implies There's something that you have been born with or there is something specific in you that explains absolutely everything because your gut has is leaking and That's just not it's just more complicated than that. There's nuance in it Okay, so for example Which bit of your gut is leaking? Where is it leaking? What is leaking through it? How much of it is leaking through it? And that's not what's going on. Actually, what's happening is it's the immune response in that gut barrier to the trauma and to the injury and to the damage. And then it's the consequences for the ecology of the gut once that damage has occurred and the cycle of that, you know, of damage that comes from it. So as a scientist, we're totally interested in barriers, totally interested in barrier damage, totally trying to understand the mechanism through which it all occurs. It's just not as simple as a leaky gut syndrome.
0: Okay, really helpful to understand. So what are your thoughts on probiotics? Do you think they are the solution that we should all be taking? Or again, are you slightly mixed
1: about that. No, I love a probiotic. (laughs) So this is probably the question I get asked the most. So as a doctor, I regularly make probiotic recommendations to my patients and I take probiotics myself under specific circumstances. What I don't do is take a probiotic every day thinking I'm going to live longer or I'm going to be healthier, right? Because if you want to regulate and improve your health through the gut, it's much, much better to think about the diet that you eat, because that's going to have a much bigger effect on it, and the other environmental agents that might damage the gut or might protect it and to regulate it through that pathway. The problem with probiotics, like when you take a probiotic, you may, you may be listening to this and you might have bought probiotics, you might read them and you think, oh, it's got a billion colony forming units and this is quite a lot of bugs, isn't it? Mm. Actually, you're dropping a billion into a 100 trillion, right. okay? And your 100 trillion are different to mine. We probably share 1% to 10% of the same bugs, and your health requirements will be completely different to mine. And I don't know precisely what strains you need, and more importantly, the particular functions of those strains that you need. So for probiotics, I think probiotics is a consumer hell, like how are you supposed to know which one to take for what purpose, and, and for how long and for when? So generally, what I say to my patients is, look, what you want is probiotics have multiple strains. Actually, what I typically recommend is a syn, S-Y-N, a synbiotic, because it's got some prebiotic fibers, the fibers that bugs need, and the probiotic agent. So try and take something that's got at least four or five, you know, strains in there. And you've got to take it consistently. So you've got to take it for at least four to eight weeks. Typically, I say eight weeks, because these microbes have got to ingraft in your gut. And then... If you feel better and it's meeting a specific health requirement that you've got that you can measure that you can see great keep going but then you have got to keep going you can't stop the problem is is that sometimes you don't feel better and if you don't feel better stop because it's a waste of your money and these probiotics are really expensive and some of these probiotic companies look you hook you into subscription fees and they go on and they go on and i spend a lot of my time in clinic taking my patients off these things and saying they are not doing you any good actually (laughs) <laughs> for that reason, I put all my patients on, or I recommend usually is a first line kefir. Mm. It's not technically a probiotic because a probiotic by definition has to have a specific, well established health benefit, right? And it's a specific strain. And kefir has got quite a lot of strains, so it's typically lactobacilli, and it's got lots of other stuff in it that works. But it's cheap. You can buy it anywhere, and it's you know it's usually pretty palatable. And if it doesn't work, you haven't lost seventy quid. You can do it for a few quid, you know.
0: Yeah. You can make it yourself as well. I was really interested in reading the fact that kefir has been shown to preserve brain health too. And there's kind of a link between Alzheimer's and microbiome. Yeah, Would you mind talking a bit more about that?
1: Sure. So before we get onto the whole kefir and brain health, because we started this conversation talking about the gut brain, the microbiome is very, very important for how your brain degenerates in later life so it's very very important for how you age and how you experience the consequences of aging to get into that we just have to break down age a little bit so you can think about age in the terms of two constructs one is chronological age so how many years you've been alive and the other is your biological age so what are the consequences of those lives lived and that of course is dependent on the way you've lived your life how many fags you've smoked how many you know how many beers you've drunk and and how much exercise you have or haven't done for example so We talk about aging in the microbiome world in terms of inflammation. And the microbiome is very, very important because it's kind of the accelerator on inflammation. Like it's like, okay, you know, and we know that the more inflammation that you have or you're exposed to the higher your risk of neurodegenerative disease. And similarly, as you get old, as you hit later life, I talked in the beginning of this story about like how the assembly of the microbiome is very, very dynamic and important. In early life, when you get old, it becomes fragile again. It starts to degrade again. And as you age, you get something called immunosenescence. So you've got inflammation, which drives it the bad, and then immunosenescence means, oh, actually, immune system's a bit tired now but it's not kind of working so well, right? So the kind of, it's a bit like the brakes. And again, the microbiome is very important in that story. So you've got like a break and an accelerator and, and how you balance that as you age is kind of important. The work of the microbiome in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and other kind of conditions is super exciting and very, very interesting. And you can cause, again, symptoms of Alzheimer's through fecal transplantation in animal models. So if you take feces from someone with Alzheimer's and you put it in a susceptible animal model, they will develop symptoms of Alzheimer's, which kind of blows my mind. And actually, there's a really nice group. I think they were at the Wiseman Institute, where actually they identify very specific strains that seem to drive this, and then also their functions that, that driver. And and that might mean that actually you can target the microbiome very specifically. The microbiome affects brain function through a number of different ways. And one of the ways that we know it does it is through the vagus nerve. So you've got a very enlightened community of people that listen to your podcast, so they will know what that is. But just in case you don't, it's part of the brain's autonomic nervous system, so the automated processes that regulate your brain. And and the vagus nerve particularly kind of does your read and relax things, right? Chills you out. And the the majority of the nerves in the vagus nerve don't go down from your brain. They go up into your brain, so about 80% of them. And we know that that microbiome regulates brain function through the vagus nerve in lots of different kind of important ways, although we're only just beginning to understand it. And what we know is in that if you cut the vagus nerve in animal models, you don't get Parkinson's or you don't get Alzheimer's. And we know from humans that have had surgeries, because back in the day, again, surgeons are terrible, it used to cut the vagus nerve to stop people getting gastric ulcers, a condition ironically caused by bacteria, it turned out, don't get these, or they are much less likely to get these symptoms. Right. So although there's lots of exciting advances in the therapies for Alzheimer's disease at the moment, uh, almost none of them are targeting the microbiome at least those that are in clinical translation are, are near patient care and all of them are targeted towards slowing down the symptoms so that you know if you get it okay we can try and slow it down and what microbiome science says hang on actually maybe we can prevent this maybe we can engineer this and stop you getting it in the in the first place can you do it by getting by eating kefir well hey look i'm open minded maybe certainly by Having a gut where you reduce the amount of inflammation by having a more biodiverse ecosystem of organisms that get to munch on lovely fibers and make all the goodies that reduce inflammation, you're much less likely to get it.
0: A part of the book I really enjoyed reading was how our romantic lives yeah. are actually deeply influential
1: yeah. in
0: our microbiome. How does that work? How does the person we kissed when we were 14 probably still impact our microbiome now?
1: (laughs) Well, it's a good question. What I'm trying to describe there is that the microbiome influences the health consequences of our sex and our gender. These are obviously two different things, but also our sex lives and our sexual health. And also the health consequences of our sex or our gender as we age. So men and women have discreetly different microbiomes. And these are not just in the gut, they're kind of on our skin, they're everywhere. Of course, we've got different sexual organs and therefore they are different. And of course, you guys have babies and we don't. And for that reason, there are really quite big differences across the human microbiome. And that chapter starts out by talking about how the microbiome because it influences some of our visual cues so for example you know the health of our skin how it influences how we smell um, and and how we look that's important how you select mates but it's also important because we know from other animals and from other species that actually we select our mates based on our risk of having parasites or infections Uh, And I think I talk about the fruit fly, the experiment with the fruit flies. So a fruit fly will pick a mate based on its um, pheromones that it secretes, right? And actually, you can make a fruit fly much less sexy to its potential mate by giving it an antibiotic. You give it an antibiotic, no one will mate with it, right? But then when you put a single strain of bacteria back into the fruit fly, type of lactobacillus, suddenly they become sexy again, right? So, So there are lots of examples in the animal kingdom and the insect kingdom where we know that microbes play a very important part in determining mating rituals. And there's a big evolutionary theory that actually microbes have determined why we deviated away from the microbial kind of strategy of non-sexual reproduction to start having sex. When you kiss, you share microbes. And some of those microbes have had evolutionary benefit because they change the amount of enzymes in your mouth that allow you to digest the sort of foods that you want to eat. And of course, when you have sex, you share microbes. You don't just share pathogens. like We worry about sexually transmitted infections. A load of people have them, 80 million in the US each year. And of course, you should be getting regularly checked and you should be thinking about your sexual health, but actually you change your symbionts when you have sex. You change not just the bad bugs, you change the good bugs. And those good bugs or the loss of those good bugs can have equally important implications for your sexual health than whatever your you know, genders, your sexual persuasion is it's kind of the same. So this is an exploration of that theme. I was quite proud of it actually. I came up with the new term, holosexual. We're well, holosexuals.
0: I'm fascinated by fertility for many reasons. One being the fact that fertility has declined. Research suggests it's yeah. declined 50% in the last 70 years. Yeah. And I was delighted to stumble upon the section in your book that starts to look at the relationship between microbiome and fertility yeah. and how one could start to explain the trends in the other. So I'd love to get your take on... How is our reproductive health being influenced by our microbiome, and are the problems we 're seeing that dry in our fertility? Could microbiome be a factor in causing this
1: so i 've got a strong opinion on it, and I think it 's a really important part of the story. I think to answer that question you 've got to look a little bit more broadly, which again is something i 've tried to do in the writing of this story, which is You can't look at infertility alone in isolation, right? You have to look at it in terms of the obesity pandemic and the kind of rising tide of chronic diseases that I talked about in the opening paragraph of this book. And when you start to think of us as containing dark matter, i.e. our health is defined by the sum of the microbes that we have within us, the story on infertility begins to come into focus because it connects us across all of these different disease types and fertility is an end product of of that, right? So to give you an example of what I'm talking about, men who are morbidly obese are less likely to have motile sperm. One of the reasons that that may be is that when you're obese, you have a microbiome that's not optimized for metabolizing bile. So bile is the green fluid that you might know if you've been sick a lot, it kind of comes up. But it's a super important fluid that has lots of really important functions in determining your health. One of those is how you metabolize vitamin A. Vitamin A, super important in sperm production. So actually, that might be one route. But equally, there is a, we think, a a spermatic microbiome, super low abundance, not a very sophisticated ecosystem, nothing like the gut. There is a vaginal microbiome. The vaginal microbiome incredibly important in determining not just the fertility of a woman, but also the likelihood that a sperm is actually going to reach an egg and make it through that kind of epic journey to procreation. So, And the microbiome is actually a very poorly understood niche that's undergoing now quite a rapid advance in its analysis. And in fact, we had the first vaginal microbiota transplant performed just this year. As we try and think about engineering the microbiome as a solution to the fertility problem. And we're beginning to understand who is there and what they're doing. So for example, the lactobacilli, basically, they seem to be the key to it. Uh, they seem to be very, very important. And we know that women who lose the biodiversity in their vaginal microbiome are far higher risk of having infertility. And similarly, there's a, and this is consistent, by the way, in lots of different ethnic subgroups across the world, although we do understand that there's a quite significant global and ethnic variation in what the vaginal microbiome is and what should be there. And I think it's a very important line of inquiry and it's why you need a kind of holistic approach to kind of think about fertility. But again, the key is, is when are these interactions happening and how early in your sexual development do they all occur? And it might be really early. It might even be, you know, pre-puberty.
0: It's really interesting because you make the point that a natural birth on the whole gives the baby more microbes because yeah. it's going down the vaginal tract compared to a cesarean. Yeah. So are you saying that actually, depending on how you are born, could potentially be impacting your fertility later on in life and your other different health outcomes later on in life?
1: So I think fertility would be a stretch. I don't think we've got the evidence to say that specifically yet. But what, I'm, what we absolutely know is that kids who are born by cesarean section have a very different risk of multiple chronic diseases later in life like asthma allergies obesity cancer right we we can track them and that's you know we know that without knowing anything about the microbiome the question is why it's a harder question to answer than you might think and that's because of course if you have a cesarean section you might be more likely to get antibiotics In fact, you're definitely going to get antibiotics, right? And maybe you were having caesarean section because your kid was premature, there was a problem, and maybe actually what happens to that child in very, very early life is as important or more important. So unpicking the key environmental drivers that affect the, the early development of the microbiome is probably the most important area, in my opinion, of microbiome research. So lots of women at the moment are kind of worried about this. And again, I write in this book to say that my kids are born by cesarean section. I'm a
0: cesarean. Yeah, well, you yeah, go, right? So, yeah. you
1: know, you can live a perfectly normal, happy life and be, you know, if you're having, if you're a mom and you're about to have a baby and you're going to have a cesarean and that's the safest thing for you and your baby, you do that and don't worry. Okay. But when you've had your baby, really think about how you're going to breastfeed them and the foods that you're going to give them and try to avoid the unnecessary use of antibiotics and make sure you vaccinate them. Right. But what I was going to say to you is that Actually, what's probably even more important than that is the maternal microbiome during gestation. So how microbes signal and communicate with the gestating baby is an emerging area of our understanding, and it seems to be incredibly important. So we know, for example, from big studies in Scandinavia and and across uh, Europe, that mums that experience infectious disease or inflammation or who are unwell are more likely to have children that have neurodevelopmental problems. Well, why? And what role are microbes playing in 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 that story beyond pathogens that might cause harm? We know that the microbiome has this really super complex way of signaling to the developing baby. And it's not a single pathway. It's Hundreds of thousands of pathways. And so the way that we think about it is that it signals through a process of orchestral signaling So you have to think about the microbiome the way I think about it anyways It's sort of singing to the developing baby. In fact, it's not singing. it's got this huge symphony orchestra, right? And the symphonic orchestra is is waking up different bits of the band to sing to the baby at different parts and its development So it'll be a different part of the band that, that plays for the brain development a bit different part for the gut, right? and if you disrupt that through antibiotic use in pregnancy or by eating not very well in your pregnancy or then that might be quite consequential for the developing baby and yeah it's a very difficult thing to study it's a very difficult thing to demonstrate cause and effect because of course you can't do invasive microbiome studies when someone is pregnant that's a kind of hard thing to do the big and the most interesting area is what role does this have in the development of our immune systems in the gut is the gut really sterile when you're born. So the theory is, is in the moment when you're delivered into the world as a bright new squidgy baby boy or girl, that you are basically completely devoid of any organisms, the microscopic organisms, and then your culture as you go off into the world. It might not be the case. And there have been some studies to suggest that there are very low abundance organisms in the gut when you're born but they're prone to lots of confounding and sampling errors and people debate, well, maybe this is just because actually your sampling methodologies are not very good and this is all a contaminant. But to me, it's very interesting. And I would be completely unsurprised if a piece of science comes out in the next few years that says actually no. It's a bit like saying, the equivalence is saying, actually all life on Earth didn't really form in the oceans and bubbling away when molecules got together. Actually, it all came from outer space and landed on our planet. It would be that seismic. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Would you then recommend small children having kefir, for example, in small amounts from day one of birth? No, okay.
1: I wouldn't, because that's not what a developing baby's gut needs. A developing baby's gut needs a different kind of bug for that different part of its development. So one of the key concepts in trying to understand what the microbiome is and how it influences our health is time. And so you go through five different phases, at least this is how I think about it, five different phases of kind of evolution with your microbiome over a lifetime. There's the maternal microbiome. It's got a specific set of functions. There's the very early life microbiome because it forms an adult construct by about the age of three to five. Then you've got like the prepubertal microbiome, and then you've got the adult microbiome. And then the adult microbiome decays again as you kind of get into old age. Actually, then you've got the necrobiome, so when you die. Microbes are still living. Still, they've still got stuff to do. They're on a mission. They've got things to do. So what you need from your microbiome fluctuates depending on where you are in that life cycle. Mm. But also, your microbiome, philosophically at least, this is the way I imagine it, it vibrates every day. Every day. Like So depending on what you're doing in your life and where you are and the environment you're coming into and the, and the stress it's having to deal with, it kind of fluctuates. So those fluctuations might be rhythmic, like with your menstrual cycle or your midlife crisis, if you're me, right? Mm-hmm. Or they might oscillate with your sleep cycle, or they might oscillate with the stress that you're under at work. So the microbiome, I think about it existing actually in a quantum state. It can be like good and bad at the same time. So when you come back to your question about the baby, and that, when you think about it that way, well actually no, kefir is not good for babies. Mm-hmm. What developing babies really need is breast milk, Right. or as close as you can get to it, because they want the sugars that are going to cause the bloom of bifida bacteria in early life. And then when they start to feed, they want a diverse diet so that that gut gets exposure to what you need. They do not want processed foods. They do not want ultra processed foods. They do not want a Western diet high in meat and animal fat and sugar and refined sugar. They need a high fiber, diverse diet when they start to teethe and when they start to eat. They also need to socially interact and play. So you, that means you've got to put down your kids' iPads and the tablets. And listen, my kids grew up on tablets, so like I am not preaching, right? I was tortured by Peppa Pig. But <laughs> your kids have got to play with each other. Like, and all new parents will know this. Like, When you take your kid to the nursery for the first time, it's like a Petri dish. Like, Everyone comes out with colds and the rest of it. It's a nightmare because you're at work and you've got to go pick up the kids and there's not enough time in the day. But like, your kids have got to play. Because that's how they share microbes. They put stuff in their mouth, and they touch, and they interact with the world, right? And we know that children who have small social networks have a less diverse microbiome. So it's not just about what you feed your your baby. It's not just about the avoidance of antibiotics. It's not about, we can talk about why vaccines are important, but getting vaccines is so important. It's about how you socialize, how you interact, how you connect with the world, that doesn't mean that you should stop being hygienic, by the way. Like, wash mm-hmm. your hands. That's important. Stopping pathogens, good. But actually, it's about just reconceptualizing how you think about your relationship with microscopic life forms. They are not the enemy. They're not all bad. You should not kill all germs dead. Like, some you kind of need, you know?
0: What is the best diet, then, to nurture the best microbiome? And this goes for adults, whether yeah. they are looking to improve their mental health, their extend brain health, to improve their fertility, preserve their fertility, what diet, and yeah. I'm sure this feels like the sky is blue, that sort of diet, but actually it'd just be really helpful to hear it from you.
1: Well, it's a really interesting question because the one thing that we have absolutely learned about the microbiome is that it is massively variable between people. So your microbiome and micro- microbiome is different. You know, you're a woman, I'm a man, we're different ages, we probably grew up in different parts of the world. We might have a little bit of similarity because we both live in West London or at least we're both in West London today but we're going to be pretty different and because the microbiome is so responsible for metabolizing and breaking down such a large part of our diet not all of it but a big part of it it means that you and I can have the same meal and we'll respond to it in a completely different way Mm. and how you respond to that meal will depend what's going on in your life at that moment and how your microbiome is feeling and your microbiome actually it's pretty consistent we know from nutritional studies that you've got to change your diet quite radically to change the structure of your microbiome so we have done studies where we've taken cohorts of North Americans who are the highest risk of bowel cancer. So these are African American men. They have a risk of bowel cancer of about 100 per 100,000. And then we've taken rural South Africans who have, these are guys that live in a village in the middle of nowhere, and they have absolutely typical African diets and they eat masses of fiber. They've got like 50 grams of fiber a day. Like if you ate that, you'd blow up like a Zeppelin and you'd hate me. Um, and then what we've done is we've locked them in a the house. And then we've done a colonoscope and then we've crossed over their diet and we've measured what happens. When you make radical dietary changes like that, the microbiome in terms of its structure, it's pretty similar. It doesn't change. But what you do is you just switch on a whole bunch of genes and functions in that microbiome so that it can suddenly, if you're an African-American man, can metabolize fiber. And within two weeks, that has a dramatic impact on the cells that define the inflammatory response in the gut, and it dramatically dampens it. And in the Africans, these poor guys just whoosh, suddenly their guts become inflamed. African Rural sub- sub-Saharan African people don't get bowel cancer. They don't get diverticulosis. They don't get polyps. They don't get chronic inflammatory diseases. They don't get asthma. They don't get allergy. They get different diseases. They don't. I'm not saying that they're all super healthy, but they've got a different set of health challenges. But they don't get Western disease of the gut. So coming back to your question, what should you eat to be healthy if you want to stay healthy? Well, the answer is is that actually probably everyone's a little bit different. And there is a big push, and there are lots of companies out there right now saying that they can promise, they can tell you what you need to eat based on your microbiome analysis. I'm a little bit skeptical about whether that's really true. Generally, what can you do? Well, the simple thing that you can do, and many of you listening to this, I'm sure probably do a lot of this already, is just de-westernize your gut. That means you really need to be moving towards a high fiber with mixed fibers, so a high fiber diet. What does that mean? It means 30 grams minimum per day, 2 grams in an apple, 5 grams in a bowl of brown flakes. But also it means having different types of fiber. So we think of fiber like fiber is quite badly communicated. Yeah. So fiber you know, generally means something that is not absorbed or broken down in our guts that other bugs like or it's just not absorbed at all. So it can be... Yeah, vegetables, so you know, particularly legumes or green vegetables or you know, anything with skin on it basically has lots of these non digestible fibers. But fruits have a lot of you know, prebiotic fibers within them, so fibers that microbes really like to eat that kind of bloom, bloom with it. And they've got polyphenols in it that microbes really love and lots of other goodies, right? But generally, the good old fashioned advice five portions of vegetable a day minimum, and the more you can get, the better. But at the same time, declining your dependence on ultra-processed and refined foods and all of the stuff you already know. So reducing alcohol content, reducing particularly sugary drinks and refined sugary drinks are an absolute no. The challenge that I have in my clinical practice is that many of my patients that come to see me with irritable bowel syndrome, for example, they can't do that
0: mm.
1: because their gut has evolved into a position where actually... There's no way they can eat that amount of fibre. They get pain, they get bloating, they feel unwell because actually their guts are just so deconditioned and the microbiome is so badly scarred. So this is notion of microbiome scarring that they can't adapt it. So you've got to be so careful with these poor people, and you've got to really break down their diet and then reconstitute the microbiome over time to allow them to metabolise those foodstuffs.
0: Because I remember, you know, if someone says, "I'll oh, eat lots of chickpeas." Um, that could just cause incredible gas for two weeks. Do you kind of encourage people just to put up with the gassiness? Yeah,
1: so so eating chickpeas is great, love chickpeas. But like you can't go from zero to 100 miles an hour. Right. So what you've got to do is you've got to give your microbiome a chance to catch up and to switch on those genes and to start to be able to ferment those fibers. So what I do is I encourage my patients to do it really slowly over a period of three months. And actually what you really should be doing if you're a doctor listening to this is working with a dietitian. There are not enough dietitians in the world. We need a lot more. And you need a proper structured Plan to really help you do that. And also, a really good dietitian will say to you, try these fibers, not those fibers. And they will tell you what that means, like in a, a way that you, an average person can understand it. So, shop for these foods, don't, don't shop for those foods.
0: Thank you so much for your incredible time. I am horrified that so much of this information in your book is new in the sense that it feels so fundamental to being human. And yet we are so deeply uneducated about what you are educating us all on. So huge thank you. Your book is absolutely brilliant. Everybody needs to read it. Where's the best place for people to find you, follow your work, sure, um, learn more?
1: So if you come to dark matter, so dark-matter.org.uk, we're going to start doing some projects, which I would love you guys to get involved in. And um, you can sign up to the mail um, circular there and we'll get in contact with you. I think I'm probably on Twitter. I think I am. Although that's not that fashionable. Aren't we supposed to be Is on threads? threads now? We're <laughs> threads now. I think I am on threads. <laughs> but I'm a bit embarrassed. That I don't really use it <laughs> very well. So I'm on Twitter at Baal Surgeon. You can find me on Instagram at This is a bit, are we allowed to say on this? We're good shit microbiome on, because this book was originally called Good Shit. And yeah, please reach out. Always happy to answer questions. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well.